right, you all got October. Actually, I'm not going to say the date. You know what day Compassion Sunday's on? I heard 6th, 13th, and the second week of October. They're all right. 13th is the right answer. Uh, so get online, sign up for that. It's one of those things that has effects for us all throughout the year. Um, you don't necessarily see it right after, but throughout the rest of the year, people will say, oh, you were that church that came and did this. Oh, I remember you guys did this for us. So it's something that has lasting impact on the community. This previous year, many of you know, we had a couple awards from the city, from the community, kind of given to us as a church. And they don't give us those awards because of like the Sunday service. They don't care about our Bible studies or you know, the preaching or the worship or the, the dancing. Um, <laughs> they care about what we're doing in the community. And uh, the Lord has called us to love the people in this community. So make sure to sign up for that. Get involved. October 13th, you could find that info, Compassion Sunday, on the website. All right, Book of Jonah. I want to briefly review a little bit of last week because the foundation we laid will be incredibly important as we move forward. Today we'll be in chapter 2, and it's essentially a poem that Jonah recites in the belly of the well. But before that, uh, we've got to remember... It's not a children's book. It's not a children's story. Jonah, in order to understand this, you got to know this is next level kind of adult literature in, the, in that it brings up very complex issues, political issues. You have to understand some historical context, and it's, it's not like this. Although this is kind of cool. I mean, they did. Help, help me. Help, help. Jonah and the big fish. He's got some, look at that sashimi going up in there, though. Some other fish going with him. You know, when you think about it, there's probably more square footage in that well than some of our uh, overpriced little <laughs> apartment condos that we're living in the Bay Area. Uh, this one's incredibly scary because now it's a little kid. It's just like super terrifying. It's like, dude, this is messed up. And then the last one is yoked out Jonah who can you know, hold open the, the dude's mouth. He's that strong. So it's not this. It's not a children's story. It's not a children's book. Additionally, we talked about last week how Jonah is being told in a sort of satirical manner. What I mean by satire is this. It's the use of humor, irony, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices, particularly in the context of contemporary politics and other topical issues. So critical, important. Jonah is going to use wit and humor. He's going to ridicule. And he's going to do that to the reader. Jonah wants to sneak in behind you and subvert your expectations. When you think he's going to go left, he goes right. And everything's flipped upside down. Up is down and down is up. And he's doing this to poke at you. He's going to tease you and poke at you. And just when you think you're agreeing with Jonah, he's going to turn the tables on you and, and have the finger of accusation against you. So it's a brilliant literary masterpiece. Jonah is telling his story in a way that is absolutely incredible. Last week, we talked about the introduction. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, if you were here last week, you remember what Jonah's name means? It's dove. Super important. Because doves have symbolic value. Doves are about peace. So God is going to send a dove, a peace offering to, we'll see in verse two, the Ninevites. Very bad people. They are the worst of the worst at this time period. If you want to think of the worst people in Jonah's day, you go, the Assyrians. And the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. Think of 
um, being sent to walk into the Death Star and knock on Darth Vader's door and tell him he must repent. Like, you don't want to do that. So Jonah, the dove, son of Amitai. Amitai means truthful or faithful. So Jonah is the dove, the son of the faithful one, sent to Darth Vader, to Nineveh, which immediately strikes you because it challenges your understanding of God. Do you believe in a God who wants to send a dove, a peace offering, a possibility of repentance and reconciliation to the most vile people? Or do you want your God to kill them? It's a peace offering to the worst of the worst. Jonah, the dove, the son of the faithful one, he doesn't listen. So you're expecting everything as the reader to be, Jonah is a prophet. He's heard the voice of the Lord. He's going to listen. And Jonah's like, nah, nope, I'm leaving here. He goes to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so Joppa is where Jonah's going to get on a boat, and he's going to go to Tarshish, 2,500 miles away from where God wants him to be. Now, from last week, what's important is Tarshish is on the coast of Spain. In Jonah's day, this is the literal end of the world. So follow me on this. In order to disobey, in order to escape the presence of God, Jonah will travel to the end of the world. He goes to the end of the world to escape and to disobey. You guys know from chapter one on the way in the boat, he's traveling across the sea, storm breaks out, sailors chuck him overboard, and then we get to where we're at today. Big fish. It's so good. Seriously. This story, you're going to see, it's, it's better than, than you could ever think. And the Lord appointed a great fish Hebrew word here is dog. It's, it's in the masculine, so this is a great big boy fish. Okay? Great big boy fish. Important for later. The Lord appointed a great big man fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, Jonah is a book that's a part of a collection called the Minor Prophets, and there's 12 of them. So there's 12 minor prophets, and then there's major prophets. In these books, an image starts to develop. And this image and this idea has to do with God bringing judgment upon Israel and Israel going into judgment, but then rather than God leaving Israel in judgment, he will renew or restore or reconcile with Israel. Big message of the prophets. The prophets talk about a lot of things, but if you, if you want to know what the minor prophets are talking about, a lot of the major prophets, it's that. God is bringing judgment to Israel because Israel has sinned. But he won't leave them in judgment. He will renew them. That idea is communicated in several images, but one of the important images for us today deals with the idea of swallowing up something in judgment. So, book of Hosea. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. When do vultures come out? Something's, something's dead. There's death. So the vultures are out over the house of the Lord because they, Israel, have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. 
That's the idea. Israel has sinned, and God is bringing judgment. Verse 2, to me they cry, my God, we Israel, we know you. They know God, but they don't do his will. Does that sound like anybody? Verse 3, Israel has spurned and, uh, the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. And then, Israel, because of sin, is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. So Hosea and many of the prophets will use this image of swallowing up to communicate that God is bringing judgment. But that judgment is not final. It doesn't last forever. Let me show you some more examples. Here's Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion. He has made us an empty jar. Like a sea monster, he has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our precious things. And then spews us out. You see the image. Doesn't sound like anything. Lamentations. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. Book of Job, this isn't a prophetic book, but it still uses this image so you can see how it works. He will spit out the riches he swallowed. God will make his stomach vomit them up. One last one from Psalms, so it's a song. If the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive with their anger flared against us. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. Okay, so in the Old Testament, you have images. And one of the images that developed is Israel being in sin and then they're swallowed up. And oftentimes that swallowing up takes place with a sea monster or there's waters or storms around. The book of Hosea is doing something similar to the book of Jonah. Are you familiar with the book of Hosea? It's one of those books that often gets neglected. But in Hosea, an image that God uses in the Old Testament is then told in history. And an image becomes a living, walking, breathing example of the image. So in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people of God are called the what of Christ or the what of God the bride of Christ or the bride of God. They're the bride. And the prophets tell the bride that they have been unfaithful. The bride is unfaithful. Book of Hosea is the story of an actual prophet, a real man, Hosea, who marries a prostitute, an adulterous bride. And then the husband remains faithful to the adulterous bride. So the image in the Old Testament is bride, unfaithful bride. And then the prophet's book, his life becomes a living, walking, breathing example of the image. Hosea is like God and he remains faithful to the unfaithful bride. Jonah is the unfaithful person who gets swallowed up and spit out. Israel in the Old Testament scriptures is the unfaithful people who are swallowed up and then ultimately, not left in destruction, but the prophets, especially the minor prophets, point you to a renewal, a reconciliation. 
Jonah becomes a living, walking, breathing example of the story of the people of God. Now, the Lord appointed great big man fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Very next verse, this next verse. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the great big she fish, saying, female fish. It goes from dog to daga. And the verses are right next to each other. Big boy fish, big girl fish. This is a problem because it changes. And it, they're right next to each other. Problem. Now, here's the thing. When you find problems in the Bible, you just have to start with this premise. The Bible is far better and far more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And when you run into a problem, you just got to dig and dig and dig and dig deeper and deeper and dig until you find the gold. And when you do this, you realize the Bible is filled with gold. It knows exactly what it's doing. If you were a sort of more from a bent of a liberal theological background, you would say, this is just another example of contradictions in the Bible. They could even get their story straight. Another contradiction in the Bible. It's like, do you, do you really think these people were so dumb that in the very next verse they get it wrong? It goes from dog to daga, right next to each other. Chapter 2 is a poem that Jonah gives from the belly of the well. So let's look at it and see if it gives us some clues to what's going on. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Okay, first thing, this first line, the word distress, sarah in Hebrew, means distress or anguish. It's a great translation, distress or anguish. But in the Hebrew scriptures, this word is often used for the distress and anguish of childbirth, labor. Not every time. I mean, it's a diverse word, but oftentimes it's associated with childbirth, the pain of giving birth. Third line, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol is a Hebrew word that means basically the place of the dead. Don't think heaven and hell and full thought out like all of that. Just it's the place of the dead. That's, that's what it means, place of the dead. So Jonah in poetic fashion, says that he's not in the belly of the well, but he's in the belly of the place of death. Now, word for belly, beten. This word, most of the time, is not translated belly because it's talking about a specific portion of a belly. This word in the Old Testament, more often than not, is usually talking about the womb. So you get this. Jonah's in the womb of death. There's distress, anguish, and he's in the womb of death. What do you do if you're in a womb? Well, nothing really. But what's the point? You don't stay in the womb, right? You get born. There's a birth. Jonah is in the womb of death. He, like Israel, will not remain in the womb of death, but renewal 
rebirth must occur. By the way, if you're a Christian, you have to do this too, right? You must be born again, John chapter 3. You must be born again. You must die to yourself. And in dying to yourself, live for Christ and experience new birth. So, is it a guy fish or a girl fish? It's a dude. It's a dude fish. It's a man fish. But when you switch over to the poetry, the imagery changes because now you need to see this as not just as a big fish. This is like Jonah, like Israel, being swallowed up and he's in the womb of Sheol. And he cries and Jonah says, the Lord hears his voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surround me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now this is interesting. It says, for you cast me into the deep. Who chucked Noah over, Jonah overboard? The sailors, man. The sa- why, why you, God didn't do that to you, Jonah. It's messed up, man. We all know that the, the sailors are the one who chucked him over. No. The sailors threw Jonah over. But Jonah says, make no mistake about it. It wasn't, it wasn't the sailors. It was God. And then it says, all your waves and your billows passed over me. So in the story, it may appear that this is the the waters of chaos and there's a storm. No, no, there's no chaos. There's no chaos. Those waves are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. They're God's waves. And God is doing this to get Jonah to go down, 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 down to the bottom of the belly of the beast, to the belly or womb of Sheol. So Jonah tries to escape God, escape his will, and he goes to the end of the world. He goes to the end of the world to escape God, but God will bring Jonah to the end of himself in order that he might finally be at a place to say yes to God and no to himself. You try to go to the end of the world, but God needs to bring you to the end of yourself. And that's some of your stories, right? You tried to resist God, and you ran and ran and ran to the end of the world, and then God finally brought you to the end of yourself, and you could finally be at a place to cry out to him. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. There's going to be this emphasis of Jonah looking to the holy temple. It's like, well, the temple is the place where where God dwells, but this whole story has been about the fact that God's everywhere. The, the, The major point of this story is that even if you try to go to the end of the world, God will find you. It's going to get you. But there's this emphasis on the temple, and it may be because the temple is the place where sacrifice and forgiveness happens, something Jonah is in desperate need of. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. It's a funny, it's like, do you see it? It's an image, like there's seaweed, like wrapped around him. And the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land. This, he's going down. That's, that's a, a, a Hebrew way, the roots of the mountains went down to the land. You can't get any lower than this. 
It's where the roots of the mountains are. The lowest possible place is where God takes Jonah. It says, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. You try to go to the end of the world, God brings you to the end of yourself, and then he brings you up out of the, another image. Now it's not the belly of the well or the womb of the whale or the great big fish, now it's the image of the pit. And you're coming up out of that with life. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, into your, again, holy temple. Do you get, do you, you get this? Like his life is fainting away. That word, by the way, is often used like the ebbing of the tides, fainting. So again, it's, it's, Im- it's images upon images and images. Of course your life was fading like the tides. It's images, 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 images. And now you get this idea. When he is at the end of himself, how far did God have to take him? To the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a fish. Now he's at a place where his life is fading away and he remembers God. That's some of like your story, right? You, you tried to run, you tried to get away and then God just pursued you and pursued you and pursued you. You were brought down to the, the bell, bottom of the ocean in the belly of the beast and then finally you were out of place. Say, God, okay, I died to self. I live for you. Use me. Now, make no mistake about it. Jonah's kind of experienced this, this renewal, and it's like he's getting eaten up in judgment and brought out in new life. He, all of that stuff's going on. But by chapter three, he's already, he's already messing up again. It's, it's like us. You became a Christian, and you said, oh, Lord, I'll serve you with all of my heart. I love you. I, I'll, I will, your will, not my will. And like five minutes later, you're already cursing on the freeway. You know, you're, already, you're already upset. You've lost your temper. So the book's a very realistic tale. Like Jonah has this legit experience. And after this experience, he will finally be obedient. He will go to Nineveh. But you're going to see he, he's, not, he's not a perfect person. It, it, it's, it's really good because it's just like, like you and I. But for now, in chapter 2, in this, in this poem, Jonah is experiencing this renewal and he's remembering the Lord. But he had to get taken to the end of himself. And, and there's been some great stories last week. You know, some, there's people who, who are here who told me, they're like, that was my story. I, I had to be brought into like a whale. It's like I had to go to prison for several years. And it was in prison that I found Jesus. And then when I came out of it, I was able to live for him. And he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah's going to make, he's declaring he's going to make sacrifice and make vows. If you were here last week, what does that remind you of? The sailors. The sailors in chapter one make sacrifices and vows, which is interesting because The word of the Lord came to the prophet Jonah, the dove, the son of the truthful one. Son, it's like, you'd expect that guy to be the good guy. But Jonah in chapter two is finally catching up to the pagan Gentile sailors. The pagan sailors beat Jonah to the sacrifice and vows. 
Jonah has to get taken to the bottom, and now he says he will do that. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the manfish, dog, and it was vomited, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Probably stunk. It's probably gross, pretty nasty. But do you see this? In Hosea, the image of bride of Christ is brought to life, a living, walking, breathing example. In Jonah, you have this image of being swallowed up. It's an image of judgment in the Old Testament. It's a judgment passage. But God's grace and his mercies are new every morning. So you're not brought into that judgment to stay there forever. You're brought there for a purpose. God wants, you to, wants to bring you to the end of yourself so that you might in turn finally be about his will and his business and not your own. This is a difficult message. This is a very difficult message for everybody because uh, no one wants to think that about themselves. No one wants to think that you have to come to the end of yourself and you have to re- realize you're wicked and finally submit your will to God. No one wants to do that. In fact, not only no one wants to do it, it's an offensive message, especially to our culture. Like you gotta recognize your own moral depravity. You gotta realize that. And no one wants to do that. See, in our culture, um, we have this idea that everyone's kind of good for the most part. Yeah, sure, we make little mistakes here and there. Here's a hiccup. But whenever something wrong, whenever you do something wrong, it's not out of re- rebellion or wickedness or sin. It's, it's always put in therapeutic terms. It's like, well, that was just some of my insecurities manifesting, but no big deal. And then someone tells you, you're perfect just the way you are. Don't change anything about yourself. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. No one wants to admit there's any rebellion or wickedness or sin. And the Bible's offen- offensive because pretty much every other page, it's telling you that. We don't like to hear that. We, we think very high of ourselves. But here's the thing. Sin runs deep. Sin runs deep in your bones. It's so deep. I mean, you got to go deep, 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 deep to see how far sin goes in your life. You do things you're not even conscious of. You are driven by forces you don't even think about. Your operating system is ran and fueled off of sin, and you're not even realizing, not even conscious of it. Let me give you an example. Uh, I still go to school. I think I'm almost done, maybe a year and a half, two years. Uh, And so I just got back. This week I was in Pennsylvania for it. I have to fly down there um, often. In, in that, one of the students said, man, we have this really prideful person at our church, and I'm trying to work with them. They're so prideful. I don't know what I'm going to do. She was asking for advice. So I, in turn, give my very humble opinion on how to solve this pride problem with a story about myself. <laughs> you go, I know a lot about pride. I know a lot about it. I'm giving my humble opinion. So... This is how deep sin runs, though. It's like all over, you're not even aware of it. So I, I, I told them some of my background. I said, you know, I was raised in church. I believed in God, all, all, that, all, all of that stuff. But in high school, it really became real to me. I became serious about following Jesus. And in doing so, I wanted to know the word of God. I, I love the Bible. I wanted to read more about the Bible than, than, than anybody. I loved it. I was reading the Bible nonstop. And then I was reading like a book a week on theology and apologetics. So... 
Picture like 18-year-old Isaac reading the Bible, and praying, and, and, and knowing theology and apologetics, which is a good thing. If you're a Christian, you need to read the Bible, and you need to, to, to want to learn more about God. But the question is, what is the, the motivation, the desire underneath that? So for me, 20 per, I'll give myself the benefit of the doubt. I'll say 25% of why I was reading the Bible and growing and learning was I, I genuinely loved God and I wanted to know more about his word. But there was also desires and motivation that were fueling and Adam animating that desire to, to read the Bible. Because I wanted to know the Bible more than anyone else. I wanted to know the Bible more than anybody. Because I like to be right. You know, I like to know a little, and not just the Bible too, I like to know a little about everything. They ask me something weird, like you can ask me something about growing watermelons, and I can tell you a lot about it. It's just bizarre. It's like, well, why do you know? Oh, I just love knowledge. No, no, no. You like to be right, and you like to know. You know, some of you are like this. You know, someone says, well, you know, the war began in 19, actually, it didn't begin in 1947. It was, that's a common historical mistake. It was 1946, to be exact. It's like, oh, okay, good, good for you. You, you knew the exact date. You know, you got to know, know it. So, I have this desire to read the Bible and know God's word better. And part of that motivation is good, but a big chunk of that motivation is being fueled by wanting to be right, wanting to know everything, to know it all, to be able to correct people, to be able to show people while they're wrong. And then you've got a picture 22-year-old Isaac. Isaac, 22-year-old Isaac's thinking, I'm only 22 and I already know the Bible better than some pastors. So you, you see how that works. Even the good thing is tainted with sin. Now, imagine this. Imagine realizing that your greatest so-called virtue is built on vice and sin. You want to you be crushed? You want to have your understanding of yourself just rock to the core? The best thing about you, the one thing that you thought was virtuous, was still built on a foundation of sin. Man, sin runs deep, deeper than you know. You don't even know some of the things you do, why you do them. You know when you're five and you're in kindergarten, uh, they, they, like the teachers will have this little plaster thing and you put your handprint in it and you put a little picture of yourself, a little picture of yourself and then a handprint and then you take it back home and I love you, mom, here, you know, it's, it's a gift. Okay, I'm five years old and I'm going... My mom's going to love this. I'm, I'm going to give her this, and I'm probably going to get a better Christmas present because of this. <laughs> now, think about it. Think about this. At five years old, I am already thinking about how to manipulate my mother into getting more things. Do you do that? What about you do something really good for your kids as a parent? Why do you do them? Well, you love your kids and you want to do right for them. But you ever catch your mom or maybe yourself doing something really nice and cool for your kids and then just making sure the other moms are aware of it? Because yes, part of it is motivated as you want to you love your kids, but you can, you, you want to you be the good, you know. 
not like that mom, I'm the good one. And some of you moms are really good at being good moms. Always, everything's just done right. I could feed the pride and the ego. So Jonah reminds us of moral depravity, how deep sin goes down into the very bones of your being. And nobody wants to hear that. The other reason why Jonah is extremely offensive or the idea of grace and forgiveness is offensive to modern people is because um, we are spiritually impotent in regards to fixing ourselves. So some of, some, some of us, especially if you're an American, okay, I, I'm morally depraved, I'll give you that, but I'm gonna fix that. I got a plan, I'm gonna take out my agenda, my journal, I'm gonna have a 12-week program, and I'm gonna become a better person. Only Christ is perfect, but I'm gonna get pretty darn close. Got it all planned out. And the Bible reminds you, you can't save yourself. You can't fix it. Jonah can't swim his way out of the whale. God has to tell the fish to open his mouth and vomit him out. You can't save yourself. And it's very difficult because we, we think we can fix anything. If anything breaks, you Google how to fix it. And there's an, not only is there answers on it, there's going to be video tutorials, multiple video tutorials competing for you to watch on how to fix whatever's broken. The most important thing about you is broken and you can't fix it. Something on the outside has to, an external agent. An external agency must be involved and it must do something to you internally. God, his spirit, the external agent has to come and do something to you internally. No one wants to believe that. I want to, I can fix it. I can fix it. I got a plan. You don't got a plan. Even if you could fix yourself, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't want to. Because the, the, the Bible says it's, it's not as if sin is over there and I don't want that sin in my life. I don't like it. Oh, but I have this sin nature, so I'm being pulled to it. No, no, no. The truth is that you see sin and you like it. Even if you had a way to fix that in your life, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't want to. Sin is enticing. It's alluring. You don't sin because, oh, I hate this. No, you, 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 you like the thing you don't like. It's a paradox in that. So, that's why the story of Jonah, the story of the gospel, the story of the Bible again and again and again is the story of grace. It's the story of God bringing circumstances to bear in your life so that you were brought to the end of yourself that you could put both hands out and receive the goodness and grace of God. You have to. And why is it costly? Because someone has to pay the price. Jonah fixes his eyes on the temple of God where the sacrifices are made. You, as a Christian, have to fix your eyes upon the cross of Christ. That is where the sacrifice of all sacrifices takes place. That's where it goes down. And then you just receive grace. You receive his grace. The external agency of God's spirit comes into your life. You die. 
and are reborn. You must die and experience rebirth. And in doing so, this is crazy. This is crazy. Colossians 2 says there's a mystery. And the mystery is that Christ is in you. So that external agent, the spirit of Christ, doesn't just stay external. Comes into you. The mystery is Christ in you. Now, if you've been brought up in church, that kind of gets watered down. It's like, oh yeah, Jesus lives in my heart. No big deal. No, no. Christ, the hope of glory, lives in you. And now, day by day, your desires are changing. You're being conformed to his image. You are looking more like Jesus, being conformed to his image. And the beautiful thing about this is... um, as a church, we strive, it's, it's, we talk about this often, but we strive to be gospel-centered and mission-focused. And you kind of see that playing out in the book of Jonah. Jonah has to receive this, this judgment, this swallowing up. And in doing so, he has to experience renewal and rebirth. And as soon as he does that, as soon as he's finally spit and vomited out of the well, what does he do? Then he finally goes to Nineveh. Then he goes about God's mission. It ain't going to be perfect. We're going to see in chapter 3, it ain't a perfect man. But first grace, God's spirit, renewal, rebirth, and then mission. The ushers are going to pass out communion. And what I like to do is maybe apply Jonah to different people in the room. There may be some of you who are not Christian. You're just checking things out. Or um, you've been coming to church for a long time, but you've never truly, truly bowed the knee to Jesus. Um, Today might be the day you die to self. I don't want to live for me anymore. I want to live for you, God. And um, there's an easy way and a hard way. The easy way is you hear the gospel message and you believe. The hard way is God brings you to the end of yourself. You have to go into the belly of the beast, into the womb of Sheol. For others, you might be a Christian, but you're like Jonah, and you have this this sin in your life, something that you refuse to give to God. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Jonah. That happened, but Jonah still refused to give something up to God, and he didn't obey So there may be some of you in the room who there's some sin you're holding on to. You're saying yes to God on a lot of things, but no to this, clinging to that idol. Maybe today you hand that over. Because whom the Lord loves is whom the Lord disciplines. And if you don't hand it over, you might find yourself the bottom of the ocean and the bottom of the belly of the beast in the womb of Sheol. So don't have God teach you the hard way. Even his judgments are mercy, but they're still judgments and they're still hard. And then maybe there's some of you who, you know, like, hey, I'm I'm not in either of those two categories. Maybe uh, the poem of chapter two just reminds us that um, if you're a Christian, every day you have to die to yourself. You have to die and say, Christ, live in and through me so that I may be about your mission in the world. Because you all have Ninevites in your life. Who are they? And you need to go to them.
to love them. Tell them about your king. And so maybe today's just a time for you to, to commit, hey God, I, I want, want to wake up every morning and die to myself and live for you, so help me to do that. Book of Jonah is good. Like, it's really good. Israel is being swallowed up in judgment, but the minor prophets speak of reconciliation and renewal. Jonah is like Israel who is swallowed up. Then I was supposed to save this for week four, but I'm going to say it right now. Jesus is Jonah, and Jonah is Israel. And that is why week four is a hint. I don't know why I'm saying this. Jesus will later say, you don't get any sign but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because Jesus is true Israel, the true descendant of Abraham, the true descendant of David, the true Adam, who goes to the belly of the worst possible beast in order to be resurrected in power and glory. Dude, Jonah's good. Jonah is so, so good. The book is so good. So good. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he takes the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Jesus dies. He is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices in order that we might receive a very costly grace. And just as the bread is functioning in a way to remind us of the gospel and his death, the cup is pointing us towards mission. Because Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you. And as you drink it, you are to proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. And so, Lord, first we remember your death, and now we pledge our allegiance. You are king, and we will proclaim your death and resurrection until you return. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. My prayer for this church is that we would realize how amazing the Bible is, that we would fall in love with it all the more. We would realize that there's so much gold in it. There's so much gold. Open our eyes. Give us a love and a desire to be in your word and to read it and to consume it daily. Help us to die to ourselves because we are selfish, greedy people. Give us new life in your spirit and in turn put us on your mission to preach the gospel faithfully until your son returns. It's in his name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You all have a great, wonderful day and don't get swallowed by a fish. Today is the day to repent. There's an